Last week we talked about <clears throat> we were we were in First Peter chapter four. I think I'm not sure who was teaching, and we came across the verse in First Peter chapter four, verse eight. And I just wanted to kind of add a little bit to that about what this is, um, because it, this verse came twice and came to me twice in the uh, in getting ready for this. In First Peter. Chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Now, we kind of discussed a little bit. I think Pongo was teaching that night. We were discussing different aspects of this and different verses. And um, one of the things that I wanted to just bring out a little bit is that it says, Have fervent love for one another. The word love there is God's love, agape love. And we're going to be talking more, a little more about what that means later. But that means sacrificial, directed love. Okay, so we have this kind of not just we get together because we kind of believe the same. We are loving each other intentionally toward each other uh, in a direction based on the needs of the other person. That's the kind of love that is. And then it says, for love, this kind of love will cover a multitude of sins. And what and if you go back, just if you're in Peter, you flip back a few pages to the very last verses of James, okay? Go back to the, so it's just that the book before 1 Peter is James. And James, James chapter 5, verse 19 says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, Okay, so the context here is people in a church, if somebody among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, brings him back toward Christ, teaches him what's right, let him know what let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now that brings a little more light to that verse to me. Because it's talking about correcting somebody's understanding of truth, correcting them and bringing them back into a, a place where he understands what the Bible says and what is true from the Word. And it says that you're going to save his soul from death, because there may be someone among the church that may not be quite in a place of having salvation yet, and they wander from the truth because they don't know the truth. And if you share with them the truth and bring it back, you save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So when it says in 1 Peter 4, love will cover a multitude of sins, it's talking about our love for each other in, in keeping each other connected and keeping each other in truth will keep us from wandering away. And, um, you know, saving, you know, having the risk of uh, someone's soul not being saved or them not being brought to truth. They can wander away into error and false teaching and believing the wrong thing. And so when you share with somebody, that's love. Fervently loving the need of somebody. And so I just wanted to kind of point that out because it has to do with what we're talking about today. So we'll go to chapter 5. It says, right after Jared's favorite verse in verse 19 of chapter 4, 
we get to chapter 5, verse 1, where it says, The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Okay? So he says to them, he's talking to the elders. Now, we, would, we don't technically have elders here in this church, but generally an elder is a, a, a person that's leading in the church and teaching the Bible. And uh, usually they're, they're appointed by the person, the, the, the big elder or the pastor. But we have, we have the word elder used in the, uh, in the epistle of Timothy, in Titus and different places, just meeting the people that lead the church. And usually they're men appointed for that office or brought into that office because of what they do. Now in our church in Hastings, uh, Minnesota, back there for several years, I was an elder. And I kind of do that role here. Jared and maybe other people will, will do that. That's what that is. And so... We won't talk too much about all that right now because um, it's not really the point of this, but he's, he's talking about exhorting them. He's talking, exhorting, who knows what exhorting means? Like What's another word for it? Encourage. Encourage. Anything else? Encourage is, you know, compel. Exhorting is encouraging, but also a little bit of a, compelling <laughs> a little bit of a, um, a little more demand than just encourage it's a little more pushing a little harder than that so he's exhorting them he says the ex I exhort I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that we will be revealed now I put down three things on the on the the thing there. He says, I, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Now, that's, a, that's important. Now, we can, we can kind of skim by that maybe. But as a fellow elder, Peter is calling himself, I'm just another elder. I am a fellow elder. I'm one of the, one of the people who's in charge of the church. And he never, Peter never claimed to be the guy in charge of the church. And I know for many people that that is kind of, he's, he's the first leader, and the Catholics believe he's the first pope. But Peter himself thought of himself as one of the apostles. And, and as he's talking to people in the church, just said, I'm a fellow elder. I'm just one of you. So he's, so he exo he's exhorting them as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now that's important because Peter had seen and experienced Jesus suffering. He'd been there when Jesus was on trial and he, he'd probably seen him whipped and beaten and carrying the cross to Calvary and all these things. So he'd seen that. He was a witness of the suffering. And the word witness also means that he talked about it. He testified about it. It's kind of like a legal word. A witness is not just someone who's seen. A witness is someone who's seen and testified about it. So Peter had done that. He had done that. If you look in chapter 3 of Acts, you have a big, the first big sermon, chapter 2 and 3 and 4 of Acts. There's all these sermons about that Peter talks about. You, you, uh, 
he talks about Jesus' death. He talks about you killed him. You, this this innocent man that you killed, and different things like that. So he had testified about what he had seen and experienced. So he's speaking from from this place. He says, "I'm a fellow elder. I'm one who witnessed Jesus' suffering and death, and I talked about it." And he says, "As well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed." He says, I'm just one of those that's also going to experience the glory of seeing Jesus when he's revealed. Now remember, we had a, when I was using the PowerPoint a couple weeks ago, or a month ago or so, do you remember that we talked about the transfiguration? Were you guys all here that day? Okay. Basically what had happened is Jesus had gone up on a mountain with Peter and James and John. They got up the mountain, and Jesus had been transfigured. His face shone. He could be, his clothes became white, as bright as light, it says. And that was, a, that was the glory of God. Okay, So Peter is calling to the people as one who has actually seen the glory of God. He had actually seen Jesus transformed and, and made bright and... Um, so I think you guys remember what I was talking about. We won't go back and revisit that again, but he had seen the glory of the Lord. So he's, here, he's coming from a place of really knowing what he's talking about. He witnessed the suffering of Jesus. He testified about the suffering of Jesus. And he was a partaker in the glory that was going to be revealed. He, was going to, he, was going to, he had already seen what it was a little bit, a little bit of God's glory. And so he knew that when he's talking about the glory that's going to be revealed in the future, when Jesus appears, it's real. So that's where he's coming from. And so there's a lot of the uh, there's a lot of the things in Scripture when Peter says something, it's good to remember where he's coming from, what he's experienced, and that sort of thing. And so he's a, he's encouraging them based on all this, being an elder, being a witness to the glory, to the suffering of Jesus. And the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So those that are leaders, that are that are taking care of the sheep, <laughs> meaning the rest of us. It says exercising oversight. Now let what if you got your Bible, turn to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Beginning at verse 31. It says, Then Jesus said to them, Actually, this is right after he had first said, he had first given communion and broke the bread with them and had said, Take, eat, this is my body. That was in verse 26. Drink from it, all of you, he said in verse 27, after you've taken the cup. Verse 28 says, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. He's talking about dying. This before he died. And so, he had just said this, and it says in verse 30, when, 30 that when they had sung a hymn, 
they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written... Actually, I'm in the wrong... No, that's right one. Okay. I, got, I have one similar to this that, that's in another place. All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. I will never be caused to make offense at you, it means, to take offense at you. I will never deny you, is basically what he's saying. I'll never, I'll never um, fall from this place of, of being on your side and, and speaking for you and defending you. That's kind of what Peter was just feeling feeling like he, he loved Jesus. He said, even if all these other guys don't, don't I'm going to stand firm. I'm going to be strong. I'm going to uh, be on your side. I am not going to be scattered. I'll stick with you. But it says in verse 33, in verse 34, Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, verse 35, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. He said, I'm willing to go to death with you, Jesus. I'm not going to deny you. And so said all the disciples. So that's what Peter's attitude was at that point. Okay? So that's what he had done. And if, if you go to John, now take that thought. That's Peter's attitude of heart his intention and you go to John chapter 21 now you know the story that afterwards after this happened Peter did deny Jesus denied knowing Jesus he hung he hung way back from him when he was being taken and eventually just uh, denied knowing Jesus but he Jesus had died and rose from the dead and we're picking it up after Jesus has appeared to the disciples and a couple of some of the women, and uh, he's coming up and he's coming to the Sea of Tiberias, and I'm not going to read it all. Just basically, what happened is Peter uh, and the re a few of the other disciples they're there together. Jesus has risen from the dead. Okay, here's the picture. He's appeared to them in a locked room. They've seen him walk around. He's He's done things. He's, he's appeared to them several times. Okay, And it says in verse 21, verse 1, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples and tells who was there. And then in verse 3, it says, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. That's kind of an interesting response. Like I don't know if maybe he just needed to get some fish, but it sounds like he was just... I don't know what to do with my life. I'm going to go back to fishing because fishing was what he did for a living. So even though Jesus had risen from the dead, it didn't change him. You know? So Peter said, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we're going with you too. It says they go out and they catch nothing. They don't get any fish. Verse 4, when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore and the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered, No. 
And he said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they did and they caught a bunch of fish. And it says, then they recognized Jesus and they came in, they come in and Jesus offers them breakfast. Okay? He says, come and eat breakfast. It says in verse 12. And verse 11 says that they caught, caught 153 fish, to be exact. Okay? That doesn't mean, that number doesn't mean anything significant. That's just how many fish there were. Okay? Some people made a big deal of what that number might mean. But so after Jesus tells them to throw the net on the other side of the boat, they drag in 153 fish. And then Jesus took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. And this was the third time Jesus had showed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So Jesus has appeared. He's been appeared in his resurrected body that the disciples didn't even recognize. They barely recognized him. Back in... Uh, Verse 7, John kind of figures out that it's Jesus. He says, it's the Lord, you know. And says, none of them asked them, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. But evidently, he was somewhat different in, in the way he looked. He was glorified. He was different. He was raised. He was resurrected. He had a resurrected body. So getting to the point, that's giving us the context of this. Getting to verse 15, he starts talking to Peter. And he says, so when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And people have wondered what he meant by more than these. I believe it just means, do you love me more than these guys do? Because he had said, in the context earlier, he had said, I love you even if all of these guys mess up and run away, I'm going to be with you. So Jesus comes to him and says, do you love me? And using the word agape, agapao, which is the verb of agape love, okay? The kind of love that you really intentionally have a choice of the will to love me. Do you really love me, Peter? Do you love me more than these guys do? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. Now this is significant. This is Jesus talking to Peter, the, the person who wrote the book we're looking at, and he says, feed my lambs. And then he says, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep, or shepherd my sheep, or look after my sheep. That the idea there also is lead my sheep. Get in front of them and, and go in a direction. So there was a, Jesus is really calling him to something here, okay? And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? We don't get that in the, in the context. He's saying, the third time he says, do you love me? He doesn't say agape, do you agape me? He says, do you phileo me? Do you care? Do you, do you even like me? Are we even friends? And that's why Peter's grieved. Because he's saying, wow, do you? Jesus doesn't really know that I love him. And he said to him, Lord, you know that all things, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now the reason I, I go to that is because when Peter is, is speaking, if we can go back to 1 Peter 5. <laughs> what? 
If we can go back to 1 Peter 5, and verse 2, it says, Shepherd the flock of God. Look after the flock of God. Lead the flock of God. And that's what elders, the people in charge of churches, are called to do. And then he tells how they're supposed to do it. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. Peter, after that point when Jesus did that, after the Holy Spirit came on his life in Acts chapter 2, he willingly went and let himself be beaten and, and flogged and put in prison twice because he loved Jesus. It changed who he was. So he's saying, not by compulsion, but willingly, This you need to look after the flock. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. I'm just going to look at my notes here. That word dishonest gain means the shameful acquisition of wealth. Don't use the gospel to gain wealth, is what he's saying. Don't do it for that purpose. And uh, kind of wonder who would do that, but then you go, well, yeah, we see that a lot today. And in, in, uh, in a lot of people that use the gospel to gain for themselves, and they have million-dollar houses, and cars, and jets, <laughs> different things like that, that claim to be shepherds of the flock. And, and Peter's saying, don't use the gospel for that. Don't be that kind of leader that wants a lot of wealth. And you can see that in many of the churches through the years. Nor, nor is being lords over those entrusted to you, but be examples to the flock. I think that's pretty straightforward. And I was thinking about, it, about this. It says in, in James chapter 3, if you, if you want to go back there, just look back to James chapter 3. It's a couple pages back. If you have Bible James 3 verse 1 says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment, for we stumble in many things, or we fail in many things. So we as people fail in many things. So we need to be examples. So the, James is telling people, don't all want to be teachers because you're going to receive a stricter judgment because you're purporting to lead people in truth. And so when Peter says, not being lords over those entrusted to you, but be examples to the flock. Be examples of how it should be. And then it says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. The reward you will get is something that will last forever. Now, we talked about this word before, unfading. Uh, that word is amaranth, and that's a type of flower. The word is, I mean, the name of the flower is, is used in this word. So the flower came first. And they considered this flower something that ne its beauty never faded. So, so when Peter says that it's like this flower that never fades, amaranthos, it's unfading. It's not, it's not losing its luster. It's not losing its glory. You know that most flowers, 
don't last very long. That's why you get fake ones, right? <laughs> My mom always kind of said that, you know, they don't last long enough. For... Anyway, I won't go into that. But in flowers, don't last a long time. But this particular one is said to be a, have an unfading uh, beauty to it. But he's talking about what we will get as our reward for, for doing the right thing, being an example, and, and not dominating those in our charge, being examples. We will get a, a glory that never fades. Now, the thing that I think about when I, I think about that is that if we truly believe in an eternal reward of destiny, if we really believe that, we really believe down the road there's going to be eternity and there's going to be glory that we're going to enter into and there's going to be a reward given to us for the life that we lead. We'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we'll get this reward. We would not try to dominate some earthly system. We wouldn't try to be important in this world. Or be in charge of the you know, Christian empire of some sort. And I was just thinking about that because I think that people that do this kind of thing probably don't really have a faith that sees what's ahead. And that's what our, our lives are about. We, we have a faith that sees ahead and believes that there's something there for when we live out our life in Christ. He calls Jesus the chief shepherd. That's that in verse 4. That's pretty important. He's calling Jesus the, the main one who, who leads us and looks after us. We could talk about sheep all day. I, I mean, there's a lot of things about sheep. <laughs> and I know people in sermons have talked about that a lot. But basically, sheep are dumb, and they get lost, and they don't know where to find food, and they, they freak out and run away when something bad happens. So that's a picture of us. <laughs> Not really flattering, but if we're the people that are leading, are supposed to have an attitude of humility. So getting to that, Peter begins to talk about humility. He says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. So this, there's a humble humility called for. Be clothed with humility. Okay? <laughs> Which you have you <laughs> Now the word... When it says God opposes the proud, when it says God opposes the proud, the word that means proud is appearing to be over. Okay, appearing over, like looking, looking, look, trying to look like you're above other people. Okay, so God resists that kind of people, one who believes himself to be above his fellow man, but he gives grace to the humble. And that's taken from Proverbs 3:34, which says, "Surely he scorns the scornful, or he mocks the mocker, but gives grace to the humble." 
And humble means to bring about a recognition. To be humble is to bring about a recognition of one's sinfulness. There's a, there's an element of that in the scripture when it says humility. It's not just humility like, like oh shucks, you know, kind of thing. There's a sense where you realize that you, that we, are sinful. And we're mere creatures. And we have this dependence on God. It's this understanding of who we are and what we are. And it, it it's a little more than just uh, a connotation of humble that we have now. It's seeing our need of God. Being brought down to that place of humility. And so, Peter tells them, tells them, be clothed with humility. Submit to the elders, first of all. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Not only just the elders. And be clothed with humility. Have this attitude of mind that says, I am in need of God's... We, I, like every, every one of us, I'm in need of God's help. I'm in need of God's forgiveness. I'm sinful. I'm, a, I'm, I'm just a creature. <laughs> That's kind of the, the sense of that, that word there. So, I wanted to point out a couple things here. Humble, it says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. The mighty hand of God is not just the power of powerful hand of God. It's talking about the power of God to sustain us and help us and keep us, okay? That He may exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Okay? So, casting in that context, the word just means like throwing something. They would, like casting and what they would do is they would Throw a, throw a blanket over an animal. This is kind of where they got the word from. So it means you give it over. You give it up. You give it over to God and give it into His hand is kind of the, kind of the, the connotation there. I'm going to catch up to my outline here. I keep hitting the button that goes the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> at God's perfect time. That word that means says proper time it is keros. And it's a word that has no English equivalent. It means an opportune time that is set apart for a purpose. So God has a time when He's going to exalt us and lift us up and bring us out of whatever it is. But He's going to elevate us and give us dignity. But He's going to do that in His time. And he's got a time that he will do that. And I think that's kind of getting back to the earlier verse when it talks about the crown of life. Our reward. We will be exalted. We'll give, be given praise for how we lived our life at a certain point in time. And then it says, casting all your anxieties on him. We talked about what the word cast meant. But the anxieties word is a word that is, is called, in Greek, that means care that brings disruption to the personality and mind. It's, it's, you're caring about something to the point of it's driving you a little bit crazy. It's stressing you out. It's, it's disrupting who you are. That's the kind of care. It says, cast that kind of care on the Lord. And there's another word 
where in, in Greek they would just have the word, and then they, if they want to do the opposite of the word, they would put a in front of it. So there's at marimna, which is this care, and amarimnos, which is the, the when you're free from care or anxiety. I'm not doing that well. <laughs> so, the word means you have care and anxiety. There's a word that means you're free from it. It means you're completely free from care. Carefree and just worry-free. So that's how they do that in Greek, okay? So usually when somebody says, here's your cares, it says, cast your cares on him or your anxieties on him because he cares for you. But the other word for cares is not the opposite of that word. It's not the same word. That word, when it says he cares for you, is a different word. It just means to be of interest. It means to be of interest to, to be concerned for. It's, every, it's all the care and concern. God loves us. He cares. He cares. And the opposite of that word is to put out of one's mind or neglect. So it's saying God cares for you. He's not going to put you out of his mind or neglect you. But absent from the word where it says, talking about God's care for us, is anxiety. Because we have the care, and with that comes the anxiety. So I'll kind of diagram that a little bit here. The first part where it says, cast your cares on him or anxieties on him, is a word that means cares with anxiety. The word where it says he cares for you means he's concerned. You, he's interested. But the word does not have this in it. So God is kind of a subtle way of saying that God is saying, when I care for you, I don't have any anxiety. I don't worry about it because I have, it's God's mighty hand. But when we have cares, we have all this because we're done Because <laughs> that's, that's kind of how we're made. We're made to trust in God. We're made to, to, uh, to put it all on God. Cast your cares upon Him because He cares for you. Your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I found those words kind of interesting. Uh, Psalm 55 22 says, Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Then it says, verse 8, be sober minded. Self control, uh, the idea there is to have self control. You generally regard, regarding being intoxicated, but in this case, it's also just suggesting a mind discipline, a mental discipline, to avoid being swallowed up or concerned with the things of the world, world intoxicated by the things of the world, or made to have our mind filled with the things of the world. It says, be sober-minded. 
Be self-controlled. That sometimes in some of your Bibles it'll say that. Right? Be watchful. That's vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So this is real. Sometimes we forget that it's real. That the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. How does he do that? Well, there's a lot of things, and I have a bunch of them listed here, but you know what? Um, I'm going to run out of time if I, I list them all. So maybe if you have a pen or something, you can write these down. First Timothy 3.7, that a person needs to have to be well thought of by those outside the faith. This is talking about elders, so that he may not fall into disgrace and be caught by the devil's snare, in the snare of the devil. In, in first second, this is the one, this is the main one I want to point out, okay? Because this is very relevant to us. But there's all kinds of ways that the devil tries to get us or tries to keep us. Can you write them down in the board? Um, no. Oh, that? Here's the verses. Oh, okay. First Timothy 3 7 is about elders. And it's just, said, just saying that he should be spoken of well by people outside the church, lest, lest he fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil. And I don't have time to unfold all that right now, so I'm going to go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Okay? This is another one about the snare of the devil. And this is very relevant to us today as we're trying to uh, share with people and maybe correct people sometimes and help people in their Christian life or debate with people. It's, it's a reminder of something. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 says, Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. Okay? So foolish and ignorant disputes are things that can't be settled by the Word of God. Things that can't be settled between you for some reason. But ignorant disputes are un is also a word that means unknowing. You don't know the truth. People used to dispute a long time ago how many angels could, could balance on the head of a needle, <laughs> a head of a pin. Well, that's a silly thing because we don't know what kind of size angels take up. I'm pretty sure they're bigger than that. But I'm not going to go into... To, uh, <laughs> well, I think they can take up any size. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to go and have an ignorant oh, no. and foolish dispute about that, okay? <laughs> because it generates strife, okay? It generates quarrels. So you don't, you're kind of, it says you're, we're supposed to seek peace and pursue it, right? Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And then in verse 24, it says, And the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, Patient. This is us as believers. 
sharing the gospel with other people, sharing the Bible with other people. Maybe it's not the gospel. We're discussing something. We should be able to teach what the Bible says. We We need to be patient. We need to not quarrel, not get into a fight, but be gentle to all. In humility, it says, there's that word again. <laughs> in humility, verse 25, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses. So you're doing all this in humility, in patience, in gentleness, not quarreling, and just being a good teacher, a gentle teacher, okay? If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. That's the goal. Getting people to know the truth. And that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So the devil wants to snare people with stupid arguments, Unknown things you can't really know about. <laughs> that, that didn't make sense. <laughs> things that we can't know. Okay, put it that way. And in quarrels, in strife, and in, in things that aren't true. They're, they're caught in, in systems that aren't true. So the devil uses all that, okay, and it gets people in a snare. And when I was a kid, when I was younger, about 12 years old, we used to snare rabbits. And, you know, so I know kind of what, what it's about to have a snare. You set that snare, you put a little bit of sticks around the edge of the snare so they don't see the wire. And you put it right on the trail where they're going, right? And they jump into that snare. And it, closes around them because they can't get quite through it and it tightens. Now I was thinking of if some if a rabbit was caught in that snare and all of a sudden you had compassion on that rabbit. <laughs> you just kind of all of a sudden, you know, I don't like snare. I don't like killing rabbits. I don't even enjoy rabbit meat, you know. <laughs> I don't like rabbits. I don't want to kill this cute little rabbit. And you said, oh man, that guy got caught in there. You grab it by the hind legs and you yanked it. Try to pull it back out of the snare. Not gonna work. Okay, and Awful thing. Now if we imagine that the devil has snared the people around us that don't know the truth. The devil has snared people With the, you know, in, in error, in things that aren't true. So when we come to them, we don't grab them and try to force them to know the truth. We need to be gentle, it says, and extricate them carefully from that snare. That's what the devil's trying to do. So when we resist the devil, we're resisting him with truth. We're resisting them with the faith. With, we're resisting them with the things we know. It says, resist them. 1 Peter 5.9 Steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. 
know that everybody else is going through. Sometimes that's a helpful thing. Sometimes if you're going through a hard time and you talk to somebody that's that's uh, also going through that same time, it's it's helpful. It's encouraging. And you see a lot of the examples of that all the time. So when we are thinking about our struggle with sin and the snares of Satan and what he's trying to do, it says resist him by being steadfast in the faith. Now, it doesn't say resist him by coming up against him in our power. And I wanted to point out three things here about humility that connect with the following verses. Okay? You notice how it says, it says to humble ourselves in verse 6. Verse 6 is humble ourselves, right? Under the mighty hand of God. So we're humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And I believe that the next things that it tells us to do are part of that, that humbling of ourselves, okay? So the thing it says is to cast our anxieties on Him. Trust the Lord with our problems. Trust the Lord with our thing, things in our life that worry us. So we cast our anxieties on God. That's saying my, my sufficiency and my ability to handle my affairs aren't that great. I need God's help. There's a humility in saying I can't do it all on my own. I can't deal with life and the stress of life and the things I worry about. So I need to be humble and say, God, I need your help. Number two is saying, resist the devil, okay? Resist the devil. There's another verse in another, I believe it's in Timothy, where Paul says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Okay? He will go away. He'll give up. But it says, resist the devil with faith in God. Okay? So we're steadfast in being by being steadfast in the faith. Okay? Again, this is not trusting in us. And this is not trusting in us. It's all humility. Right? So when we think of humbling ourselves, part, part of humbling is not just, I mean, the humbling in that context is not just saying, oh, I'm so nothing and I'm so humble and I'm, I'm not proud of myself and, or debasing ourselves or self-deprecation in some way. It's talking about humbling ourselves in the sense that we are casting our cares on God, our anxieties on and we're resisting the devil by being steadfast in the faith. Now I want to point out something that's that's kind of key because there's a lot of there's a lot of talk sometimes about resisting the devil and how you need to call out Satan, tell him what's what. And I even saw a book in one of the stores we were looking at the other day about Satan. And the first word was Satan, and it is you can't do this to me or something like that. <laughs> And uh, I was thinking, well, that's not really what it's talking about. If you turn to Second Peter, now flip over the Bible, we haven't moved too far. 
Look at 2 Peter. Entrusting God to deliver us and help us. Um, this, this is in the context of false prophets prophets and false teachers. So he's talking about what's going to happen to false teachers. So that's the context of what we're talking about. Okay? In verse 9 it says, basically says, if God, basically saying God knows, I don't want to read all, all the verses, but we'll get to verse 9. It says, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Okay? So he's saying, the Lord knows how to deliver us. He's able to do that. And we can trust Him with that. But people uh, that are, you know, unjust are going to be punished. And it goes on, verse 10. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. Okay, you kind of get what that's the general gist of that. They're 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 walking according to their own lust. They're, they're, they're sinful people, basically. They despise authority. That could be any authority that's over them. We're supposed to be submissive to authority. Okay, of uh, uh, the things that God has put in place in the government, in the church, in our relationships, etc. We're supposed to understand that authority and not despise it. So these are people walking according to their own lusts and also despising any authority over themselves. Okay? They think they're above all the other authority. And it says they're presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Now in this context, this dignitaries is a word that's kind of hard to understand. It means the glorious ones, your Bible may say. Um, I'm going to read some of the other things. They don't. They call them dignitaries uh, in this in this version. In another version, they call them angelic majesties in the NAS. In in NIV, they call them celestial beings, and in uh, ESV, they call them glorious ones. Right? Sorry. But whatever it is, it's talking about the forces of evil who are fallen angels. Because it says in verse 11, however, angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a slanderous charge against them before the Lord. So the, the, the point I'm making with this, and I don't want to get into a lot of talk about angels and demons and things like that, but it's basically saying that people that don't know any better, and calls them ignorant later on, will say things against demons. They'll talk to Satan. They'll talk to, to uh, celestial beings like it's nothing. And that's being presumptuous, the Bible says. And that's putting your own self out there as the one who can combat evil. But when it says resist, resist him standing firm in the faith, you're not resisting the devil in your power or by the words you say or by the things you do. You're resisting the devil with the power of God and humbling yourself to see, I need God to resist the devil. I need God to resist those things in my life. I need God be, to help me recover other people from the snare of the devil. 
and the, you know, there's a lot of talk about what the devil would do, but uh, those are some of the things. So understand that and resist based on humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Okay? So then we get to the place where it says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you might be able to endure it. So understand that the temptation in that context is common to everyone. People all over the world that are Christians are going through the same thing that you think might be insurmountable. The thing that you might think is impossible to get to. The thing that you're being called to that you think you can't do. Understand that every Christian is going through that. Is what Peter is saying. And then he makes a promise. He says, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, glory in Christ, will himself, God himself, is going to restore you or make you perfect. That word means put to put a thing in its proper position, to perfect it, to finish, to complete it. So we're, God is going to perfect us and complete us and finish us, make things right in our life. He's going to confirm or establish us. These words have different slightly different translations, but all of them are talking about things that talk about strength and being immovable and strong. Okay? So all these four words that come at the end, it says God himself will perfect, he will confirm. That means to set fast, fix firmly, to make steadfast in our minds, make our minds certain about something, God will do that. If we have doubts, we have, we're faithless sometimes, God himself is going to make us uh, con confirm and establish his truth in our lives. Strengthen. Now that word strengthen is a word that only occurs in that verse in the New Testament. Okay? The word, the opposite of that word means sickness disease, infirmity, lacking in strength. A verb means to fall down or to weaken. So the opposite of that, meaning to make strong and healthy, God is going to do that. So the word strengthen means the opposite of weakness. Having weakness or disease or, or infirmity. You see that? So again, Strengthen, healthy, make certain in the mind, perfect. And then the last one is establish, okay? Establish means to, to place or lay as a foundation, to confirm in, in the, something fundamental. And the word uh, establish is, is, is meaning that there's a, there's a foundational strength to our faith. There's something that's there that's going to be so strong that it's not going to be moved or changed <coughs> Excuse me, or impacted by the devil. So it says, when it says resist the devil steadfast in faith, 
We're going to have faith that when the devil comes against us, we're going to have faith in God that's so strong, it's not going to make that impact. He's kind of what he's saying. And he says, to him be the glory, the dominion forever and ever.